this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So how long do you think it takes to build a sellable company? How about nine months? <laughs> My next guest, Drew Kramer, spent just nine months building his company with his two partners, Marketplace Strategy, before they received their first inbound offer to buy it. I'll let Drew explain what they did, but lots of good things here to listen for. Listen to how they focused on doing one thing. We call it monopoly control at Value Builder, but it's really one thing that you're going to do better than anybody else in the world. And listen to how he turned down other work and the opportunity cost associated with doing that. Um, he also outlined his strategic scorecard and the way he thought his company would be attractive to potential acquirers. Lots of things there that we look at in the Value Builder score as well. Um, listen to the way they did a normalization process to beef up their you know, displayed EBITDA in, in advance of going to sale. And also the definition of a BATNA and how Drew and his partners used a BATNA to get a good deal in getting acquired by Social Code. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Drew Kramer. Drew Kramer, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on the show. So Marketplace Strategy, you guys helped people who were selling on Amazon and I guess now Walmart, Jet, sort of promote their 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 online stores on those marketplaces. Am I getting that generally right? That's correct. That's correct. We work with uh, mid-sized to Fortune 50 companies and really helping uh, those brands transition into a, a digital commerce era uh, led by Amazon.com, certainly, and, and, and helping them shape strategy and execute uh, marketing plans to, to grow their sales and market share on Amazon. So, of course, I, you know, this is, I'm going to get, I'm going to date myself, but, but I go back to the days when Amazon was a book retailer, right? So you had, they, they sold books and then they sold, you know, other stuff, in particular Prime, Amazon Prime stuff. And when I search Amazon, I don't know if this is similar to anybody else, but I just look at Prime stuff because I want it the next day, right? And so there's other retailers, though, that are, that use that platform. Um, maybe for people who don't kind of get the Amazon ecosystem, maybe you can kind of just in layman's terms, explain how it works. Sure. Absolutely. So you really have generally two ways that uh, a seller can engage with, with Amazon platform. One is, uh, through as a vendor and that's, uh, using Amazon as a traditional retail outlet, uh, where you're wholesaling products into Amazon and, 
uh, you're eligible for Prime, and then Amazon is essentially selling your product. Uh, and then there's Seller Central, which is a way that uh, you essentially sell by on consignment. Uh, and this can be anywhere from a brand can do this. Uh, but most in that space, you mostly get uh, retailers that buy and sell products and they're using Amazon as a platform to reach more customers. So generally, there's kind of two ways uh, you can sell on the platform. And so in your case, which did you help brands do? Yeah, so we really targeted since we started Marketplace Strategy, uh, brands and manufacturers selling as vendors. Uh, when we started, about 95% of our clients uh, were on uh, selling as a vendor on Vendor Central. Uh, since then, uh, some of them have moved to a hybrid approach where they're doing a little bit of both. Uh, it's down to about 65%, but still primarily who we work with are brands uh, and manufacturers. Uh, they're often looking at Amazon as uh, their way into really making a meaningful impact on their business uh, with e-commerce uh, to offset anything that's happening offline. Got it. That's helpful. And, and it, how did you get into this space? Yeah, so we uh, kind of the story starts with uh, myself and two partners. We were at a, a full service digital agency, uh, really helping uh, brands and manufacturers develop their own e-commerce websites uh, and also helping them create a one to one relationship through social media where they can connect with customers directly like never before. Uh, and, and, and this was probably back in 2013, 2014. And we started to get a lot of questions uh, on Amazon. And uh, we noticed two things. We noticed one was a lot of our clients were very interested in understanding uh, how can they leverage this platform. And they were looking for expertise on the platform. They weren't finding it anywhere. Nobody was in position to help these, these brands. Uh, the other thing that, that we noticed was Amazon was now showing up where we would essentially acquire customers, which at the time was primarily Google. Uh, and so we were essentially competing uh, with our client against ourselves. Uh, right, because and, Amazon is like the, isn't it like the world's second largest search engine behind Google? It is, and it's actually the largest product search engine. So right now, fifty-five percent of all product searches on the internet go through uh, Amazon. Yes, and which which how'd you like Google to be the guys at Bing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how'd you like to be the guys at Bing? Like, there's Amazon, got a not even yeah. in the space, and they're the second largest search. Yeah, it would be tough. I mean, Amazon's such, done such a good job. And I think when you look at their prime program, you mentioned uh, what they've done with, with customer loyalty. Um, you know, of those 55% uh, product searches, 92% lead to a purchase. So wow. you're talking about a significant consumer segment that is going to Amazon to buy anything they need. Uh, so so I was... I was, I'm working on a new book and I just I was just doing some research about Jeff Bezos. So he started the thing in 1994. It's he's now worth, as I record this, something like a hundred and sixty-five billion dollars. So I was kind of doing the math. Of course, he's going to be worth like eighty billion dollars after he gets divorced. Sure, <laughs> sure. How does that work? Yeah, he's he's um, he's uh, certainly done well for himself. That's for sure. So let's get back to marketplace strategy. So so you guys see this niche. You're at it. You're at a digital agency, and and the, the three of you guys decide to start. A company that would do just this, not to be a general, you know, full service digital agency, but just help brands with Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, part of our, our business strategy from the beginning has been, you know, the we felt like the industry was moving. And, and when we talked to CMOs uh, and, and, and potential clients, 
you know, they want true experts. And, and the knock against a lot of agencies are, you know, they'll take on a lot, a lot of different work. Uh, and at the time, um, you know, we were doing kind of full service where we were working across search and, and email and, and social. And what we set out to do is say, look, we're, we want to build an organization that has deep expertise in one thing. Uh, and we want to be the best in the world at it. And that's what we're going to focus on. So, Drew, the, the, uh, commendable for sure, and something that is so in line with what we talk about value better. We talk about this thing called monopoly control, which is like kind of doing one thing better than anybody else. The pushback we sometimes get, in particular from service companies, is, um, yeah, but I've got clients coming to me for other stuff. Did you guys ever experience that when you went and put your shingle on and said, look, we can help you with Amazon? Did you get people coming to you say, yeah, yeah, I get the Amazon thing, but can you help me you know, with SEM or SEO or other digital type services? So this does happen all the time. Uh, our clients come to us and they say, well, can you help us with e-commerce uh, and either my own website or on social or, a, and, and, and what we tell them is, and we've been very disciplined in, in not taking on that work. And for us, it was just to evaluate what the opportunity costs are with taking that on. Uh, yes, it would be great to take on all that work in the short term. Uh, but did we think there was a big enough opportunity, which what we were focused on, and certainly with Amazon and the growth that they're experiencing, uh, we always felt like, um, you know, it was worth uh, turning that business down. Now, I think the other thing that I hear sometimes is, well, what if your client goes to some an, another organization that does what you do, right? And so what we try to do is set up kind of a, a little network of trusted uh, agencies that we can then uh, bring in in those situations. So we knew our client was going to get uh, good work done, uh, but we also uh, minimize the risk for us and them going off to uh, kind of a full service shop. And did you get rebates back or, or kind of referral fees when we when you sent work out to one of those partners? No, we really didn't. Uh, our whole uh, you know our whole approach to that was really to keep it uh, you know with with having a very high degree of integrity. Uh, our, our, our discussions were around, okay, uh, how can you reciprocate some referrals back to us to Got help it. our business? And then we kind of left it at that. Yeah. Makes, makes sense. So you, you, the three of you guys start this business. I'd be curious to know how you divvied up the equity. Like, was it all for one, one for all third, third, or third, or did so some guys put more in or how did you kind of decide who would own what part of the business? Yeah. So what's really interesting is I have two, uh, wonderful, wonderful partners and, you know, we couldn't have done this without each other. Uh, I think uh, when we started the company, um, and we 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 all, we went all in uh, equally on the company. Uh, what we did was it was more about we thought we could go faster and take advantage of what we felt was a huge tailwind in, in an industry and a huge skill gap uh, in the marketplace by really talking about what were the roles and responsibilities and expectations of each other. And we felt that if we can get that right, uh, we would be successful and we would be able to move very quickly. And we had a so high degree of trust. When did you guys open for business? So we opened for business January of 2017. Wow. Literally, what are we, two years? We're recording this in, in February 2019. So literally two years. I, I love how quickly. So, I mean, when you started this business, was, you know, were, what was your aspiration? Were you trying to create the next Omnicom, the next Ogilvy and Mather, or what was the, what was your vision? 
Yeah. So, so what we really wanted to do was we wanted to build a special place for people. Uh, you know, one of the things that sticks out to us has always been, you know, the, the data that comes from Gallup where it talks about 87% of employees in this country are, are disengaged. And, and, and to us, you know, we wanted to build an organization where uh, culture came first and it was a great place to work and we create opportunity for people. Uh, secondly was the deep expertise. And we felt like that was a good um, strategy to grow. Did, did we want to sell? Did, did we know that that could be an end game? Absolutely. Uh, was that the sole intention when we set out? Uh, it was not. It was to build a, a great organization to create opportunity for people and really to help clients uh, kind of move and transform their view of their business from maybe traditional and retail to, uh, to e-commerce. Got it. Although I have to kind of... I have to tell you, I feel a little, a, a slight degree of skepticism around the great place for people stuff. And I don't know why. I, I, uh, well, well cer- certainly the, uh, you know, anybody listening could, could, could feel that way. I think what we've all, in, in my experience, having uh, engaged employees and having a great culture leads to business results. And, and typically the people I talk to or the folks that I mentor uh, and talk with it, when we can make that connection and we always felt that we are building an organization where, uh, it's not, you know, we're not making widgets, uh, what we, what we provide the service we provide our people and our approach and our strategy and creating a good culture attracts great people and we empower great people. And that creates a great organization. Uh, and that's difficult. Sorry, Drew. Did you find it difficult to find people because because an expertise in helping a brand uh, with a juggernaut like Amazon or or Walmart Jet, you know, that's a very specific expertise that you could really hang out your shingle as a as a freelancer, put you know, throw your resume up on Upwork and get lots of business, you know, without the sort of safety of a, of a, of a, of an employment arrangement with marketplace strategy. Did you, did you find it was difficult to recruit people and, and, and how did you do it? Yeah. So, uh, talent, uh, acquisition is still a, a very much a priority for us. Uh, what we did when we started uh, MPS is we really created, uh, a strategy and an approach to how we're going to go in. And these were based on templates and we were, these were based on, uh, uh, extensive study of algorithm, uh, the algorithm for Amazon is called the A9 algorithm, extensive study on that to understand where to start, what leverage to pull, uh, based on where the client was, um, how to invest their media dollars and advertising dollars. And, and we actually put together an approach that we use in our first client. I got to tell you, John, the first client we had, we rolled out our full funnel approach, uh, and, and they were doing about 35,000 in monthly sales uh, on the platform. And in, in seven months, they were up over 500 a month. Uh, and when we said, we got something here, uh, we think uh, this can, can work, this can scale. Uh, and so what we started to do in terms of how that rolls into acquiring great people is we were looking for people that had a lot of experience in digital marketing and e-commerce. And then they were coming with fundamentals that then we can teach our approach and our system to uh, and it, it became a, an effort in training and development. Um, but what we, we tried to do is shorten the window of when they would come in to when they were delivering uh, a value to the client. And so we created a lot of those systems and approaches together where we can then scale through 
uh, folks with fundamental kind of digital competencies. Before we hit record, we were just riffing a little bit, you know, in our conversation, and you had said, you know, one of the key learnings for you uh, was how important it it was to start a business kind of with the end in mind. Maybe maybe explore that a little bit. What what were you, you know, when you when you started in 2017, had did you have a sense of who you would likely get acquired by? Yeah. So one of the things that, that we felt like was a good approach was to look and say, how would a strategic uh, really evaluate us as an organization? Uh, and we developed a scorecard uh, based on that. And, and it isn't just for uh, acquisition purposes. It's also, it's, it's minimizing risk in your business, whether you continue to own it or you, you sell it. What was um, on your scorecard? Yeah. So, so things like uh, certainly looking at revenue growth. So year over year revenue growth, month over month, month over month revenue growth, we have to keep track of. Uh, EBITDA margins, kind of the, the normal kind of couple metrics you would look at. Things like management experience, uh, looking at what was the experience of the people that were really driving the organization forward. Uh, one metric we keep track of on a monthly basis is client concentration. Uh, so when an acquirer looks at a company, we always felt that uh, when they look at us, if we had you know, 50 to 60% of our revenue coming from a single client, that would indicate tremendous risk for a potential acquirer. So we wanted to make sure that we always kept that uh, 15% or lower as basically the largest client we have, what percentage of our revenue comes from that largest client. Um, <clears throat> things like billing structure. So uh, are, we, uh, are we putting together programs for our clients to engage with us on a project by project basis where, where we have to resell our service? Or is it a monthly recurring revenue model uh, where we're able to execute marketing and advertising programs uh, on an ongoing basis? Um, building technology, uh, having a, a proprietary technology to empower our service and help us deliver better service to our client is something that would be considered um, uh, proprietary to us and a differentiator in the market. And then finally, uh, the scorecard would have the client roster. So understanding what clients could benefit from our service. And when you're looking at what a potential acquirer would look for, uh, it, it, it may vary if, if you have uh, more small businesses, more mid-sized businesses, or enterprise level uh, clients. An acquirer may look at that differently and understanding what clients you're going after from a new business perspective from day one uh, could ultimately determine who would be in the market to acquire you. What triggered the acquisition conversation for you because you guys had just started in January 2017. It w- it must have been less than two years in that you started to have conversations with Social Code. What what was the trigger? Yeah, so we started to get some interest in late 2017, early 2018, and and you know we had been in business for for a year. Uh, and you know when we what was your reaction to that out of interest? I mean, like you're a year in. I mean, the the, the ink hasn't even dried on the business cards yet. Yeah, getting acquisition it, it, it numbers. Was, it was quick. It, it was a little surprising to us. Uh, and then over the next couple months, early in the 2018, uh, the interest started to escalate. Uh, we started to get uh, who we thought would be our major players in our space. Uh, interested in what we were doing. So we kind of knew you we know had, they were interested, Drew. Like what sorts of things did they say or do that would lead you to believe they were interested in acquiring you? Yeah. So, so some would reach out uh, directly and, and, and be very blunt. Uh, they're looking for an acquisition in the space. And, uh, you know, we'd like to talk to you about, uh, you know, MPS and 
Uh, others would uh, more kind of kick the tires and, and, and reach out and talk. You know, they, they'd want to jump on a call or meet and just talk overview of, of, of what we're doing. Uh, they all kind of take a little bit of a different approach. Um, but the thing for us that uh, we learned very quickly was the, the types of companies that were reaching out uh, were really uh, who uh, ultimately, you know, we would be excited about potentially partnering with. And so um, th- th- that kind of led us down a path to say, listen, we're, uh, we weren't sure we wanted to sell at the time, um, but we knew that uh, we would, as interest really escalated, we want to learn. We wanted to really learn, get out there and learn to hear uh, about what these, uh, an acquisition could potentially look like uh, and, and what the potential partner's uh, view is of the landscape and what their vision is. Uh, and then, and then ultimately also trying to learn valuation and, and saying, you know, is the, uh, the value I receive from the company, you know, I, do I think it's fair? Um, what does the market say? Uh, and so those are the types of things that we kind of set off for, uh, when we started the process, not necessarily committing to, yes, we're ready to, to sell the company. In those early conversations, what were we hearing around the way companies like yours were being valued in the marketplace? So it was kind of, uh, all over the place. Uh, our, our, one of the things that uh, worked against us was just the, the track record uh, of, of, we're talking 12 to 18 months at the time. We couldn't go back and look five years. So that inherently brings some risk in the, in the conversation. What we would generally hear is there's a, you know, a value of, of multiple of EBITDA. Um, there would be a, a structure where it would, you know, look at, uh, you know, whether it's an earnout or uh, structured payments or something um, to that nature, it was, uh, but, but, but overall it was uh, very, very widely depending on who we were talking to. What sorts of multiples of EBITDA are we talking like the broad range that you would have heard during those conversations? So we heard anywhere from, um, you know, just in terms of our own research and, and I, I can't get into specifics in terms of, of, of our deal, unfortunately, but just in terms of when we, we went out there and we, we talked to a lot of our advisors who did a lot of valuation work for us, uh, the industry was seeing anywhere from seven to 12 uh, multiple, depending on a lot of different factors. And, and of that, what, again, I know you can't speak specifically about the, the social code deal, but just in your conversations with your advisors and, and, and the, the, the inbound acquisition conversations where you were having, wh- what sorts of proportions did you hear would be in the earnout versus sort of paid up front? So they were talking sort of seven to 12 times earnings all in, but I'm assuming a portion of that was at risk, if you will, in an earnout. What sorts of proportions did you hear? Yeah. So I think there's two things that we heard in terms of structure of how these deals are done. Uh, one is, uh, an earnout uh, of anywhere from, uh, you know, 25% upwards of 60%. Uh, and then the other part was, uh, a lot of, some of our, our, our potential acquirers had models where there would be equity retained, uh, and there was a more model of a, a retained equity and then a structured payout over a, a few years. Um, I, we get the sense that everyone kind of has their own model that they're a little bit more comfortable with. Um, but that in general, that's kind of the range of what we were, um, you know, in our evaluation, what we saw, you know, historical deals, uh, get done at. 
That's helpful. So where did it go from there? Yeah. So what we did was um, we had uh, lots of conversations, lots of meetings. Um, and really what, what our approach was, was to learn. But what we also felt that it was, you know, for us, what we really wanted to do is say, how do we evaluate potential partners? And, and what's the criteria that we should be looking at when we sit down with these organizations? And, you know, it came really down to three things for us. We thought, number one, it, it, there, we have to have a mutual alignment in terms of vision and where we want to go. Uh, and we know that this is going to be a relationship we're going to continue. Uh, so that was important. Number two is, is this good for our people? Uh, we talked about people earlier. I think, you know, our, our view is there are, we have folks that uh, are, uh, that came on board with us when we were in a, a small little closet of a size room uh, that we had to convince we were a real organization and we were doing big things. And, uh, and we wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. And number three, we felt like a partner really needed to add value to what we were trying to do. Um, and so, you know, there's things like valuation, there are kind of table stakes and anything like this, in our opinion. Um, but those types of things, we, we really set out to understand more of, um, so where we went from there is, um, again, you're, you're doing calls, you're doing in-person meetings, you're trying to get to know these organizations, you're trying to figure out, um, you know, what, what they're all about, what their vision is and how you would fit into that vision. Uh, and then from there, we ended up meeting the folks from social code, uh, and who's part of Graham holdings and met with their leadership team and really hit it off in terms of alignment on, um, values, uh, alignment on how we look at kind of the agency landscape. Uh, and, uh, you know, from there it was, uh, we went all the way through and eventually got a deal done. So at some point in these conversations, they, it sounds like they went from being uh, kind of back burner inbound inquiries that you sort of entertained loosely to where it sounds like the desire to sell for you and your partners kind of took a life of its took on a life of its own. It sounded it sounds like the way you're characterizing it that it it created some momentum as you had more and more of these conversations to the point where you know you you really did more put it on the front burner. Am I correct in that sort of observation or? Yeah, you are. Really yeah, nice. absolutely. So as we went through the process, uh, there were definitely uh, some things that were happening, right? So we, we, we were keeping an eye on the industry. Um, there were obviously, there was some consolidation uh, that had happened uh, during our kind of evaluation uh, where we saw some of our competitors, uh, they were acquired. Um, there seemed to be a lot of energy around the M&A activity in the industry. Um, but, but more importantly, uh, we started to understand uh, where you know this thing could potentially go, uh, and what resources were available to us, uh, and uh, you know all those things combined uh, just led us down a path where we got really comfortable with the group, uh, and we were aligned on 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 every facet of of what we believed in and what we thought um, the the plan could be moving forward. Um, what we thought the valuation was and, 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 and how we were looking at the business. And uh, we did extensive analysis and, and this was a, a, it's not an easy decision. You know, at least for us, it was not going through this uh, being that the company was so new. Uh, there was extensive evaluation we were going through with our partners to understand uh, if we didn't sell, what would that look like? And 
if we did, what, you know, what was the upside and downside of both? Uh, and at the end of the day, you pair that with, you know, your comfort level with a certain partner and it, uh, it, it became clear what, what the best path for MPS was moving forward. What did you see as the, the pros and cons to remaining independent? Well, I think when you set out as an entrepreneur, or at least in my opinion, there's, uh, there's a, a, there's a freedom that comes with it. There's, uh, there's the uh, ability to, I think, be a little bit more flexible and, um, move a little faster. Um, and, and, you know, for us, it was a question of what do we need to take, to take kind of the next step in the company's evolution? Uh, and is that something that we could, uh, is that a partner could help us do? Um, but certainly the, 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 the upside of, of, of not being acquired, uh, is, you know, continuing to build something and, and to stay independent. Um, and, and, and have the freedom that an entrepreneur has. And I think that's, um, you know, continuing to grind and continuing to, to do the things that, you know, we would still consider ourselves a startup, but being a true startup and, and going through the grind that, that is exciting. It's, uh, and, and it brought us to that point. That's helpful for sure. So at some point, these conversations with social code became more serious. Can, can you describe that point? Did, did they, you know, did you guys sign a letter of intent or what was the, what was the trigger that, that made you go from evaluating lots of different offers to, to sort of getting engaged to social code? Yeah. So, uh, once we started to get comfortable with, with their leadership team and, uh, and, 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 you know, what they really believed and then it kind of moved to more of discussions on, okay, what this, what could this look like? Uh, and understanding what, what really they wanted to get out of the relationship, what do we want to get out of the relationship? Uh, and then ultimately it leads to a formal letter of intent. And then you start to go through, uh, due diligence, um, which is basically opening up the door and, um, you know, having, um, having them look at everything and validate all the numbers we were discussing and that sort of thing. How many employees are you at this point? So we have 18 employees at the, at, at this time that we're going through this. Got it. And, and are, are those uh, all full-time or some of them kind of more on contract? Like what's the, the core staff? No. So they're all for full-time. So we hired 18 employees. Um, we had 18 employees in about 17 months before we, we sold. That's helpful. So, so here's an interesting question. I, I think at least <laughs> you'd be the judge of that. But <laughs> you know, with only 18 months running the business under your belt... Um, and all the costs associated with starting a business. Even I, I joked about the ink not being drawn on the business cards. But in the early days, you got to create business cards. You got to find an office, but you got to do all these things that cost money, right? And so the first year or two, companies don't generally make a whole lot of money. What was the? Did you go through um, sort of a an adjustments or normalization process through your P&L to try to scrub out some of those one-time expenses associated with you guys starting? We did. Uh, we went through a little bit of that. I think uh, our approach from the beginning was uh, to, uh, to, to be a little bit more scrappy in terms of a startup. I think, uh, you know, we, we felt that uh, we could have uh, went and raised uh, money to start the company. Uh, and when we really dove into what the cost was and what the benefit was, because essentially, you know, giving up in those situations, what you would have to give up, uh, was it worth it? And, and we ended up uh, bootstrapping, uh, bootstrapping the, the, the company. 
So we didn't have, you know, again, we, we didn't have a ton of expenses. Um, but to your point, there was some normalizing of the PL just to back some of those out and really try to get to a run rate. Uh, in our experience, I will tell you that uh, it was more looking at uh, what was currently happening and what the future could look like over the next three to five years. Uh, just being that we were such a new company, uh, the focus was more on uh, looking at uh, the future and what that looks like versus you know going back to month one where you know we're buying computers, we're getting office space, and we're doing all the things that a startup uh, needs to do. What was the conversation between you and your partners when you reviewed the letter of intent? What sorts of things did you guys discuss? Well, I mean, it's a, it, it can be a tough conversation. Uh, we, we certainly spent a lot of time thinking about whether it was the right decision, um, doing analysis, as I mentioned, on uh, looking at you know the future, if we were to make a decision to partner with an organization or not. Um, and, and ultimately when, when we looked at each other, we were completely aligned at the end of the day that we thought this was the right thing to do, uh, given, um, you know, where the company was at the time, uh, given where, you know, what resources would be available and, and what we thought the, this partner in social code could, could help us do and, and really carry out the vision that we've had from the beginning, uh, without sacrificing anything that we really cared about. And, uh, that was that was that was kind of the conversation, but it was it was a lengthy conversation and it happened over uh, a couple of weeks. And what's the sort of stage of life that you and the two partners that you that were part of the founding team of Marketplace Strategy? What stage of life are you all at? I mean, are you at similar stages, or you know, is one guy ready to retire, the other just having kids? Like, did, did you guys were you are you at similar life stages? Is my question. No, I, I'm 35 and I'm the old guy. Uh, uh, my two partners are, are younger than I am. Um, um, Curtis is um, about 30 and, and Sam's a few years younger than that. So uh, we're at, um, you know, I have a couple of young kids and, and so we're at different stages of life. How, how did uh, that impact those conversations? You know, it really didn't come up. Uh, surprisingly, it, it, it was more, uh, you know, I think it would have, would have been different uh, looking back if uh, we had someone that was ready to retire. Um, but, you know, we all really love what we do. Uh, we all are excited about the future and, and know that, you know, we want to do this for a long, long time. And so uh, that, that really didn't come up uh, too much in the um, in the agreement, I, I think what, what we always took the approach of as partners is to, you know, let's, our discussion should be framed around the facts uh, and should be framed around, you know, honesty and transparency. And, you know, we always went into, and certainly you have disagreements and you have good, healthy debates. And I think that's a, a really healthy part of a, a partnership. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all would remind ourselves that, you know, we're all just trying to make the right decision. Uh, and so we may have different approaches that on how we make that decision based on past experiences. Uh, but at the end of the day, we were all, our intent was, was very much aligned. I can remember when I first had kids, I think I kicked into a, a kind of a provider, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> Neanderthal sort of, uh, uh, kind of headspace where all of a sudden I, I, I realized I was you know, I had to sort of provide for my family because, uh, 
that was that was sort of what was expected of me. Maybe there's some sort of like deep seated genetic coding on that. But <laughs> did you did you feel have any of those feelings when you had young kids that here you are out on a limb with this this business idea and and here's this big billion dollar you know company, social code being backed by this big big you know that was making an offer that really could maybe take you a little off that that risk reward continuum, but at least lock in some. Yeah, I, I think it certainly comes in the, the, the conversation. Um, yeah, I think I think my approach and my my thinking around it was, you know, when you're taking a risk uh, on a business and it, it doesn't work out, uh, the risk isn't on that business. The risk is on your ability to uh, either start another business or, or 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 work for somebody else. Uh, I, I think when when we looked at going through this process. Uh, it really you know, had less to do with with that. I mean, there was some consolidation. So certainly it comes up in the conversation that, you know, if we were to continue to grow over the next couple of years, uh, would there be buyers? And I think that's natural to come up in these conversations. And uh, we saw that in, in our space in digital with SEO companies in early 2000s. And we saw it with social media companies and you saw it with... Um, digital media and programmatic uh, agencies. And there's sort of a wave in content marketing. You go through a wave where, you know, there's gr- tremendous growth and then there's industry consolidation. So certainly, you know, that, that those risk factors come into that discussion. Um, but I would say, you know, in general, it was, uh, you know, we felt like, you know, an old, an old professor of mine at, at Case Western had told me, uh, it was a negotiating class and it said, you know, he talked about the best thing you can have is a, is a good bat and a, a good best alternative negotiated agreement. And, you know, we felt in this process that our second option was to not sell the company and we were comfortable with that. And so it actually, you know, it, I can imagine going through a situation where, you know, you have to sell uh, based on maybe in a, an unfortunate event or, or something external, uh, how it could be, uh, very different experience than going through saying, you know, let's look at the upside of of going through and partnering with a great organization uh, and not be in a position where we have to act. And that's, you know, that was a benefit for us, I think. Excellent. So I want to go back to this social code offer. So, so you get this draft letter of intent uh, from social code. Did, did you shop the business to other potential partners? Did you play that offer and see if you could get... Uh, you know, a better offer from somebody else? Yeah. So one of the things that we did not do is hire an investment banker. Um, uh, we actually, I actually ran the process um, and had four uh, organizations to kind of the offer stage around the same time. Uh, and this took a few months of um, balancing and, and making sure I was having the right conversations. Um, we had some great advisors uh, in our, in our legal firm and our accounting and, and tax firm. Um, that helped along the way. Um, so we did get down to where four organizations were, you know, at that stage, which was, was, was fortunate for us as well. And at that stage, did, were you able to get any movement on any of the offers by, by sort of letting them know there were three other, other, uh, offers at the table? Yeah. I mean, I think we were pretty transparent that, uh, there were, uh, other parties involved. So, you know, whether internally that, that creates some movement uh, or not, I'm not sure, but, uh, we were transparent that, you know, there was uh, multiple organizations that were, 
um, you know, in discussions with us. And, um, that, you know, that, that was, that was certainly a factor. Uh, and we wanted to keep our options open to, to, to see who would be the best partner for us. So I, I'm sure that created some movement. How transparent were you with your employees? Uh, so, you know, outside of the, myself and the two partners, um, the employees did not know, uh, these conversations were going on. I think, you know, part of going in on our, and our thought process was, uh, that we would do want to create a distraction. Uh, and, and we wanted to kind of explore this opportunity, uh, uh, in, 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 in confidence. And that's kind of the approach we took. How did they react when you told them? Uh, surprised. Um, it, I think it was the, the, the speed at which it happened. Uh, a lot of our employees are, are some of the, the smartest people I've ever worked with. And, you know, they, they, they came over and they, they helped us grow the company. Uh, I think it was an initial shock. Um, and once we, you know, we spent a lot of time with the employees, uh, it, during kind of the announcement and, 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 and after, uh, talking through kind of what they were thinking individually, uh, and as a group. Uh, and I think once, uh, we really, you know, discuss with them, uh, the benefits and the upside and what this provides the organization in terms of stability, in terms of things like employee benefits, um, it, it, it really became more of an exciting time for the company. Uh, but certainly when, when, when you hear the initial news, there's that the initial shock, um, but, but quickly led to excitement and, uh, and, and it's continued through kind of post acquisition life. So you gave them the, the, the real, you know, personal nuggets that would benefit them, right? So being part of a bigger company, they're going to get better benefits, more, you know, upward mobility, more chances to th- those sorts of things. You, you kind of told them what's in it for them right up front. Yeah. I think, you know, that was our, our, our thought was to, um, you know, we, we thought kind of natural, uh, someone would say, okay, what does this mean for me? And that's kind of a natural reaction. Any, any, any news like this. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, they had a comfort level that, you know, this was, uh, you know, our, our people and our teams were in, in the discussion as far as, you know, what life after acquisition could look like. Uh, and once we focused on that, like I said, it did, it did move to more, uh, excitement and we, and we were transparent and honest with them about the process and, you know, some of the things that we considered, um, as far as, uh, what changes, if any, would, would be created by, by, by taking advantage of this opportunity. What advice would you give an entrepreneur who was considering a deal that had some sort of structured component to it? In other words, there was, there was an earnout component, or maybe they were being asked to retain some equity in, in the merged company. What sorts of you know, beyond, you know, I, I captured your, make sure you have a vision alignment. It's good for your people and that the other company can add value. Got all that. I'm thinking much more tactically than that. Like, is there a, a deal term or an I to dot, a T to cross that, that you should make sure you get nailed, um, you know, before you sign up for an earnout? Yeah. So the one piece of advice I would, you know, give, and, and again, depending on is a certain situation is to really evaluate how the risk is transferred uh, in any deal. Um, there, there's always risk involved in any organization and 
uh, these, these deals can sometimes transfer risk to understand how that is transferred. So, uh, how this, uh, you know, how this could, could, what, what this could mean by way of example is, uh, if you're going into a structure where it is, uh, heavily, uh, majority weighted on the future, uh, earnings of the company, uh, that's, that's transferring risk back to the entrepreneur, uh, and versus, uh, making sure it's, uh, it's a fair, uh, kind of risk, um, mix. Uh, certainly there's going to be, um, you know, in, in these deals at the end of the day, there's always, uh, an organization that wants to structure it a certain way or evaluate a certain way or, or do something with the company. And then there's the entrepreneur who, uh, or the group of entrepreneurs who, who want, you know, maybe something different and coming to an agreement that's fair. But one thing I would always just keep an eye out for is evaluate that risk uh, profile and, and how that shifts before and after, uh, and, and make sure you're really comfortable with that. Uh, and if you're comfortable with that, uh, then I think it, it, you could come to you know, something that works for both, uh, both parties, but you, know, you have to get comfortable with the risk you're going to have after the acquisition um, goes, goes through. Makes perfect sense. Drew, I appreciate you spending the time with us. There is there a place for people to reach out if they want to learn more about what you guys are doing at Marketplace Strategy slash Social Code or, or maybe Absolutely. personally? What, what's, yeah. the, what's the best place to go? For sure. They can hit our website, marketplacestrategy.com. Uh, they can also hit me on Twitter. Uh, it's dkramer32. Uh, and you can also um, email at drew at marketplacestrategy.com. Happy to field questions or if I can help anybody uh, individually with questions or just to talk through some things. Uh, if my experience can help anybody else, I'm more than happy to take the time to do that. Drew, you're a good man. Thanks very much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.